Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit be with us this morning again, and guide us and inspire us through uh, the session today so that we really understand and we get to know what it is that you want us uh, to hear and understand out of uh, these two chapters of Hebrews. So help us to open our minds and our hearts and to be willing to uh, be flexible and change if necessary. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a couple things I'd like to uh, kind of go back to last week on. Uh, things that I forgot, and yet I think it's important in a way. Have you ever uh, encountered or wondered, particularly when you were reading the Old Testament, why there were duplications in several places? Uh, for example, there's uh, two different versions of the creation of uh, the earth and so forth. Uh, several different uh, duplications, you might say, of stories and so forth. If you recall, last week we talked about the four different sources of information that began as histories. Uh, you had the Yahwist, the uh, Elohist, the Deuteronomist, and then the priesthood. It began around the, uh, let's say, the 9th century B.C., or late 10th century, 9th century B.C., with the Yahwist in the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And then we had uh, sort of a corresponding one in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Those were the Yahweh's people. We also had another one in the north, the Deuteronomist. And then after the Babylonian captivity, we had the priestly group that grew up uh, and became uh, somewhat influential in uh, ancient Judaism. And it was from the priestly group and the priest Ezra that took the histories of these other groups and sort of brought them together. But in the process, you can understand that, for example, in the Yahwist and the Elohist group, there would be a lot of the same stories a lot of the same history because they were the same people. They were just in a different location. But the beginnings, in many cases, were pretty much the same. And so when Ezra began to put these together, he took sort of all of the information and sort of separated it in some ways. Uh, for example, the book of Exodus only covers three main uh, parts of the Jewish people's transition or release from Egypt and into the, the beginning or the edge of the promised land. There's only three major points in there. All of the other stories relating to the 40 years is in the book of uh, Numbers. And then the book of Leviticus 
has all of the uh, religious developments of Judaism, whether they were before the Egypt uh, period or afterwards. But it was between the uh, period of the escape or the release from Egypt up to the Babylonian captivity that is covered in Leviticus. But there are four different groups of people putting information and histories into what is now the Old Testament or what we call the Old Testament. Remember, the Jewish people do not call it the Old Testament uh, because to them, it's the only Testament, you see. And uh, to them, it is still uh, living and valid, etc. Okay. But the reasons for the duplication is that when Ezra put these stories together and put the books together, he felt that Many of these stories were very valid, but they came from a different point of view and were therefore worthy of being put into the various books. Now, you go, uh, let's see, 500 years into the future, down to the time of Christ and in the first century uh, A.D., when the Gospels were written, you have four different sources of Gospels. Okay? Now, the Gospels also tell pretty much the same kind of story. And there are duplications uh, in the four Gospels. All right? And have you ever wondered why? Why do we need four Gospels? Yes, they came from different places, different people, and for different reasons. But there's one that most people don't think about. If there was only one gospel, people would have the right to say, well, that was written by one person, and how do we know that it is accurate or correct or it's truly God's word? But when you have four different people coming from different areas at different time periods for different reasons, it's more likely that what they are telling us is accurate and truthful. Of course, inspired by God himself. So, that is just a little tidbit of information that I think is in the back of a lot of people's minds, but they kind of fail to uh, ask the question or get it clarified uh, simply because they don't think it's important. And yet it is. It's important to understand why the duplications in the Old Testament and why are there four Gospels in the New Testament. Okay. You'll notice that in reading this, the author has a way of giving you some tidbits uh, of information about a various subject, but then going on to something else. And then he'll come back and get into the subject that he had given you a little bit about and go into a great deal of detail. 
Well, that's what we have in chapters 9 and 10. We have the detail that was sort of mentioned earlier. But I want to go through 9, chapter 9, a little bit uh, in more detail than perhaps uh, you were expecting or even maybe want. But I think it's important because there is a word right here in uh, the first verse. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. Circle that word, earthly. Because the main difference between the covenant, the first covenant, that is what we would call the Old Testament, and the new covenant established by Christ is one that most people, particularly the Jewish people, fail to understand. And that is, the first covenant is earthly bound. It was, if you recall, the three main points of the first covenant was that God promised descendants to Abraham. Descendants, land, and his divine protection. The divine protection, remember, played a big point, uh, or a big part, in the Babylonians' uh, the captivity, where the Jewish people failed to understand why would God allow them to go into captivity in Babylon. He was prom- He promised them protection. Yes, he did. But they didn't keep their end of the bargain. But it took them a while to finally understand that. And in many cases, the Jewish people, even today, do not have the same understanding of spirituality as Christians do or should do. That is probably the main difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The idea is that everything in the Old Testament is earthbound. It wasn't really intended that way, but that is the way it worked out. The New Testament and the new the writings of Christ are all based on spirituality. And many people fail to see that. But that is the way we should look at it. So, let me go through some of this and we'll point out where that's all coming from. So, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was constructed, the outer one in which there were the lampstand, the table, the bread of offering. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil was the tabernacle called the holy of holies. Now, we used to have that, really, in our own Catholic churches, up until Vatican II. Remember the altar railing? All right. The altar railing was really 
the dividing point between the nave of the church and the sanctuary. We used to call everything inside the altar railing the sanctuary, yes ma'am? Uh, in the Lutheran church they had the railing. Yeah. You go up and you go round in a circle. Because I used to be Lutheran and you went round like this in a circle. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well some churches still do. The oh. Slavic churches which is a Catholic church in Michigan where I go to when I visit my sisters, uh, they still have the railing as well. But the majority of Catholic churches in the Roman Rite have done away with the, with the altar railing. Why would they do that? Because they didn't want the idea that people could not approach God in the temple. And that is exactly what this is all about here. Okay. Okay. The Greek church still has the altar railings, yes. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I lost my place here. Behind the second veil was a tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Right, the tabernacle. That is why generally the tabernacle in our Catholic churches sits somewhere. Uh, in an area behind the altar, all right? That is how the Jewish churches, or pardon me, the Jewish temples or synagogues were set up. Um, in which the Holy, the Holy of Holies, in which the gold altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, entirely covered with gold. In it were, in it, that is, in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, where the gold uh, jar containing the manna, the staff of Aaron um, that had sprouted when they covered, crossed the Red Sea, and the tablets of the covenant. Somebody asked me one time, he said, you mean there really was an Ark of the Covenant? I always thought that that just happened in Indiana Jones. <laughs> I thought, ooh. <laughs> Yep, yep, there really was. Uh, and that was the uh, single item that represented the presence of God among the Jewish people. And it was in a uh, fancy tent, you might say, all the time that they were wandering in the desert. Uh, and it remained in a form of tent until Solomon built his temple in the 10th century B.C. So we're talking over a period of 500 years or more. All right. And this is, of course, in reference to Solomon's temple, where there was a difference or a separation between the holy place and the holy of holies, all right, which contained the temple of the Ark of the Covenant. With these arrangements for worship, the priests, in performing their service, go into the outer temple repeatedly. That is, in the holy place. But the high priest alone, the high priest only, goes into the inner one, that is, the holy of holy area, not without blood, that uh, he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. 
That doesn't sound right. Yeah, he goes into the inner tabernacle once a year. Oh, all right. Not without. That's a double. That's a double negative. Not without means that with. All right. That's the part with with blood. But this was animal blood, of course. All right. That he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. In this way, the Holy um, Spirit shows that the way into the sanctuary had not yet been revealed while the outer tabernacle still had its place. This is a symbol of the present time in which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper in conscience, but only in matters of food, drink, and various ritual washings, regulations uh, concerning the flesh imposed until the time of the new order or the new covenant. In other words, Everything in the Old Testament worship was earth-based. Animal blood was used, but they had to do this repeatedly, over and over, offering different kinds of sacrifices. Remember that the sacrifice of animals was was not just once a year. It was frequently, almost every day, but the, can you imagine what the temple must have smelled like? Well, they, most of it would be eaten. Yes, that's a good point that Madge brings up. Many people think about the waste of the animals, but don't worry about that. There were parts that were given to the people for eating. Parts of it were for the priests themselves. That's what they live on. All right. But uh, only portions of the animal. But remember, and this is something that a lot of people aren't aware of, the altar on which, the altar of uh, sacrifice was outdoors. Not inside the temple. It was outdoors. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I'll bring in next week uh, a picture of what it perhaps looked like. So, you know, no, we don't know what it looked like exactly, but because Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in the sixth century, uh, but we do know that. Um, the altar was outdoors. Okay. Yes, Nick? Yes. Same thing. Same as... Yes, it's a throwback to... And in many Catholic churches in Europe, there are very large uh, golden gates between what was the old sanctuary and the nave of the church. And now the whole church is called a sanctuary uh, because the altar has been taken, I mean the altar railing has been taken away. All right. Uh, The idea is 
that God wants us to come close to him and not be separated. There is no separation uh, between priests and lay people. Everybody is called to come to God. That's right. The whole idea is that the priest is no different than anyone else except that he has been consecrated for a specific job. But each one of us has a point or a part to play in God's plan of salvation. And we, when we fulfill that role, uh, can feel that we are just as equal uh, as the priests are. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that we should uh, not honor a priest for what he is um, and what he has done. But that doesn't make him different or better than anyone else. Okay. That's right, yes. Yes. Uh, I don't know how many of you have known that here, but in uh, particularly Matthew's Gospel and Mark 2 to some degree, when Christ dies on the cross, now remember, the cross was way out on a hill on Calvary, but the temple veil separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple inside uh, was torn. And it was torn from top to bottom. Now, if any, and of course, remember, the ceiling uh, was 12 cubits high. 12 cubits is approximately 18 feet. So this bar, this veil, which was a heavy curtain, not just, you know, something light and flimsy, uh, was 18 feet high. So how could it be torn from top to bottom? It's God himself is tearing that apart because now that Christ has paid the price for our salvation, there should be no separation. Very important. Yeah. Think about it the next time uh, you'll hear that read, but it's only read uh, on Good Friday, if I recall. Yeah. <clears throat> it says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come to be, passing through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that, of course, is a reference to heaven itself. That is, not belonging to this creation, again, heaven, he entered once for all into the sanctuary, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. This, thus obtaining eternal redemption... You see, the author is trying to convince a certain group of Hebrew people who have been uh, 
sort of ostracized, you might say, from their own people because they converted from Judaism to Christianity. So they, you know, they don't belong to the old group and they're having misgivings uh, about belonging to the new group of Christians because there's no temple, there's no synagogue, there's no fancy uh, <coughs> there's no fancy vestments or liturgies, etc. Those things haven't been developed yet. And they're saying, you know, we're being faced with persecution, we're being from our own people, we're being faced with persecution from the Romans. For what? You know, but the author is trying to convince these people that there is so much more here. Unfortunately for them, who are used to physical types of spirituality, now have to contend with uh, mental, you might say, spirituality that is developed in the mind and the heart. Um, because they don't have the physical um, things that were pleasing to the Jewish people. So it says, for if the blood of goats and bulls, then the sprinkling of heifer's ashes can sanctify those who are defiled so that their flesh is cleansed, flesh, remember, the outer part, the earthly part, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. In other words, because Christ was God himself, perfect in all sense, his blood shed on the cross was sufficient to cover the sins of all mankind for all eternity and is far more important and should be accepted that way and looked upon in that way rather than uh, the blood of animals. For this reason, he is a mediator of the new covenant since a death has taken place with a deliverance from transgressions under the first covenant, those who are called, and we are all called, in fact, there is a very major uh, document in the Vatican II uh, documents, the, the 16 major documents, one of them, uh, the uh, Constitution on the Church, it is stating very clearly that all mankind is called to holiness through Christ. Remember, before Vatican II and for centuries, the church felt that only the priests and the nuns and uh, monks, you know, those consecrated people, could really be holy in the sense that God is asking. And this is, of course, not true. Yes. When the Pope was here too, I followed it on TV, and they called the Pope the Holiness too. Yes, His Holiness. Yes. Yeah. 
That that's sort of a, a title, you might say. Oh. Yeah, that's all that is is a title. Yeah, and Pope Francis probably would be the first one to shun such <laughs> such a, a title. Yes. Uh, in fact, there's a very interesting book called His Holiness by. Uh, uh, Woodward, Bob Woodward, you know, the fellow that wrote all of President's Man and so forth, and uh, a an Italian correspondent, I forgot his name, uh, but it is a wonderful book uh, about the efforts of Pope John, the Sec- John Paul II in bringing down communism, uh, particularly in Poland beginning in Poland. All right. yeah. Very, very interesting book. I, I would recommend it highly. Okay. Now, this part he's getting into, it sounds uh, a little bit on the legal side, and to some degree it is, but I, I think it's one of the, you see, the whole idea of covenant and testament are both legal terms. In fact, well, I won't go into that. I was going to go into the history behind the word testament, but I think you can use your own imagination there. It says, for it will take, for a will, you know, last will and testament and so forth, takes effect only uh, at death. It has no force while the testator is alive. And that's true. I'm going through a, a situation like that right now. Thus, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. When every commandment had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats together with water and crimson wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book. Now, that's interesting that it would say book. I think this is sort of a translation problem, uh, because really what it means is that the Ten Commandments were written on stone. At the time of Moses, there weren't any books that hadn't been developed until much later, so the book would have to refer only to the stones of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Uh, let's see, Moses took this and, and sprinkled it on the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the book of the covenant which God has enjoined upon you. In the same way, he sprinkled also the tabernacle and all of the vessels um, of worship and blood. Well, there again, that's a translation problem because at the time of Moses, there wasn't any tabernacle. Okay. There was the Ark of the Covenant, but not a tabernacle in the way we think of it um, as later. So this had to be thought of in a later uh, time period. According to the law, almost everything is purified by blood. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In almost every culture, even in the Aztecs and the Incas, who were separated from uh, the people of the Mideast for thousands of years, had some form of worship shedding blood. And in many cases, it was even human blood. Uh, with uh, human sacrifices. So what he's talking about here is the sacrifice of the blood of animals could not compare in any way, shape, or form uh, with the sacrifice of the blood of God himself through Jesus Christ. Uh, And as I said before, this is somewhat uh, legalistic here, but uh, in a way, it's interesting. It says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly of the heavenly things to be purified by these rites, but the heavenly things themselves by better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands, a copy of the true one, but heaven itself that he might now appear before God on our behalf. Somebody asked me just last week, uh, I think one of you ladies back there, uh, that after Christ uh, rose from the dead, what did he do? And this is one of the things that he did. All right, Uh, In going to heaven, he is there on our behalf as an intercessor between mankind and God. And that is why when we feel really down, we should pray to Christ himself for the whole idea of lifting us up and asking God for forgiveness if necessary or to help us through a particular problem. So he is there as a primary intercessor. Um, I lost my place. Not that he might offer himself repeatedly, for that was not necessary, as the high priest enters each year into the sanctuary with blood that is not his own. If that were so, in other words, if Christ had to do that, he would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the ages to take away sin by his sacrifice. This argument can also be used about what if they find people, human beings, on other planets? You could use the same argument that they would have to accept the sacrifice that God gave us through Jesus Christ because he was not going to do that again or again and again depending on how many planets they may find human beings on. My personal feeling is that there are no other human beings uh, on other planets because If you think about it, 
this is God's whole creation out of love. And love doesn't need to have be repeated over and over and over. God's love is shown to us through all of creation. I was reading something just last night that says if you look at creation and the many things that God has given us solely through the eyes of human beings and totally ignored God, you have one opinion that is empty and sort of meaningless. But when you look at the whole idea of creation as part of God's plan and God's love, then it puts a substance to it that cannot be there in the other way. Uh, try looking at it in that way. For example, and I'm not talking just about people because that's a little more difficult to uh, visualize but, and, and comprehend. But take uh, a beautiful setting of any kind of nature and you think about it in just terms of material things, things that you can feel and touch and so forth, and forget about God. Somehow or other, it doesn't have the same meaning when, as when you think about God's being behind that, and that is representative of his love. It's a whole different spin on um, how you approach creation. But now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the ages. The end of the ages. And uh, a lot of people think the end of the ages is at the end of the world. No. The end of the ages started with the death of Christ. And that is because everything that God wants mankind to know was given to us through Jesus Christ. The whole first part of this book of Hebrews is that it starts out by saying, in times past, God spoke to mankind through Moses and Abraham and the prophets, etc. But now, in the end times, God speaks to us through Christ, through Jesus Christ, and through the church. No one else. And there is nothing else revealed to mankind since the time of Christ about God himself. Everything that we need to know has been revealed. Now, that doesn't mean that the understanding can't be further developed. But the basic knowledge was given to us through Jesus Christ. says, but now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the ages to take away sin by his sacrifice. Just as it is appointed that human beings die once, and after this, the judgment for the human beings, so also Christ offered once 
to take away the sins of many, and it will not be, uh, he will not do that again, because it's not necessary. And will appear a second time, not to take away sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. In other words, the second coming. This is a sort of a very brief um, hint, you might say, about the second coming of Christ, which will be at the end of the world. And so a lot of people hook those two things together and talk about the end of the ages being the end of the world, but that's not uh, a correct interpretation. I hope you're beginning to see what the author of this letter is trying to do. He's trying to convince not only the Jewish people of 2,000 years ago to not leave Christianity uh, because it doesn't have all of the physical um, beauty of the Jewish faith, but because it is the only key to salvation. And that is true for mankind today. We are being so distracted uh, by new inventions, new technologies, uh, new creations, new ideas and so forth that uh, people just say, well, they don't have time for God anymore. They've got to be aware of what's going on and they have all of these smartphones and the iPads and all of that stuff. And it takes up all of their time. Uh, unfortunately, they are missing out on what is truly important. Uh, and they've got to spend time with God. They've got to spend time in personal prayer. Not just going through the motions. Just going to church on Sunday is not going to cut it. And that is something that We've really got to get into our minds and our hearts. And I'm afraid that there are so many young people today. I mean, I see it in my own grandchildren. My own grandchildren. Uh, they feel that, you know, they've got to be doing something all the time to entertain their mind. And they don't have time to sit back and really smell the roses and spend some time with their God. And yet, at the end of their life, that is where they're going to be, facing God, and he's going to say, well, you didn't have time for me. I'm not going to have time for you. You got a question? Jesus is God. Alright. The question is, because I've said that Jesus is the intercessor with God, does that mean we can't pray to God? Well, Jesus is God. So you are praying to God. What you're making a, a distinction here is between the three persons of the Trinity. But remember, the three persons of the Trinity are God. 
And that's why you don't have to say, well, God, would you pass this information on to your father? You know, that's not necessary. Okay. And a lot of people are saying, well, can I not go directly to God and bypass Christ? Well, why would you want to? Okay. Christ is our representative. That was his primary job. I had to, hate to put it that way, but, you know, that is really the easiest way to explain it. So, but no, you don't have to worry about uh, not being able to go to God because Christ is God. Yeah. And that's what he's all about. Yes. I hear a lot of people today say, well, I don't go to church anymore. I don't need to belong to it because I'm spiritual. <laughs> and you do. You hear that constantly. I, I'm, I, I believe in spirituality. Well, ask him to explain that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know that. In other words, I don't need to be at a physical place. I'm spiritual. But then they don't even pass that on to their children. Well, that's true. You know, you don't have to go to church in order to pray. Because God is everywhere. All right. And are you praying, though? You see, are you taking advantage of what spirituality is really talking about? And what spirituality really is? Spirituality really is a close connection or close unity with God himself. But if, you know, you're just saying you're spiritual, that means, you know, the mind is accepting the fact that there is a God, but what are you doing about it? You see, one of the stories of the New Testament is, you know, you all have heard the stories about the the ten virgins, or now they're calling it bridesmaids, Uh, Hollywood Hollywood wouldn't agree. They would say that's an oxymoron, you know. (laughs) Uh, But the story in the Bible is you had ten bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom. Remember in Old Testament uh, weddings, or Old Testament period weddings, it was the bridegroom was far more important than the bride. Okay, of course that's totally changed around these days. The bridegroom is kind of, and the, the groom is forgotten. It's all the bride. Well, that's you know pendulum swings back and forth. Anyways, in that story, five of them were uh, wise and brought you know oil for their lamps. The other five were not. This is a parable now, okay? This is just a story to illustrate a point. And they are waiting for the bridegroom to come so that they can go into the celebration. All right? Well, as time went on, the bridegroom is delayed for whatever reason. And the ones that uh, didn't bring any oil for their lamps were afraid that uh, their lamps were going to go out and he wouldn't recognize them and so forth and so on. And so they asked the others for uh, oil, you know, to share the oil and the others say, no, go and off and, and get some. Well, the whole idea here is preparation. And that is what we're talking about. Your prayer time should be preparation 
to get to know God and have him get to know you. All right. Because at the end of that story, when the bridegroom comes, those who have uh, their lamps still burning go into the celebration. And the door is locked. This is a very common cultural practice. You lock the door so that you don't have every Tom, Dick, and Harry come in to the celebration. Only those who are invited and are prepared. So, when the five come back from getting oil, they find the door locked. And, you know, they rap on the door and want to get in. And the bridegroom says, why should I open the door and let you in? I don't know you. And if you think about it, if God said that to you when you approached the pearly gates, I don't know you, so why should I let you in? That would really be the end. And that is so important for people to get into their mind, to develop a relationship with their God, so that he knows you and you know him, and that you constantly are seeking his advice as to how you should fulfill your role in his plan of salvation. Remember, all of us have a little bit, a little part to play in God's plan of salvation. That's what it's all about. And if you are not fulfilling that, when you get to the pearly gates at the end of your life, and you never know when that's going to be. As I said, I had two deaths in the past ten days. Uh, both of them, well, one was was pretty much expected. The other one wasn't. Uh, you just wonder. When these people get to the pearly gates, is God going to say, I don't know you, so why should I let you in? That's the whole reason for really spending time with God himself through prayer. Not just, you know, thinking that you're going to church on Sunday is sufficient. And yet you'll hear a lot of people say that. Well, I go to church on Sunday and I'm a good person. That should be enough. Uh Uh-uh. A lot more to it than that. Just the mere presence in the church on Sunday, even if it's during Mass, is not worship. And that is what God is expecting. To have you give part of yourself, your time, your mind, and your heart to God during the Mass. That is what you give. What you put in the collection basket is is really not that important. It's far more important that you give part of your mind and your heart and really want to open your heart to who God is so that he can speak to you. People say, well, I don't get anything out of going to Mass. Well, that's because you've looked for something before you went there. You didn't take anything with you. You didn't give anything. And it's only when you give time through your mind and your heart and in participation with the Mass that you then feel 
the love that has really come to you through Christ. Chapter 10 is pretty much all about uh, that idea. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, that is the Mosaic law, is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of them, it can never make perfect those who come to worship by the same sacrifices that they offer continually each year. That is, the once a year uh, Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement in the Jewish um, faith, uh, they feel, well, that's, that's enough. They don't have to do anything. And unfortunately, the Jewish people, even today, do not have a sense of spirituality or a personal relationship with God. They always feel that God is too high above them and they could never reach their, uh, that level, so they're not going to try. How unfortunate. Otherwise, would not the sacrifices have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, once cleansed, would no longer have any conscience, consciousness of sin? But in those sacrifices, there is only a yearly remembrance of sins, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats take away sin. For this reason, now remember, the sacrifices of animals under the Old Covenant were accepted by God as expressions uh, of humility or sorrow or asking for forgiveness or whatever they are. They had many different kinds of uh, sacrifices, and, uh, ceremonies. All of this is kind of spelled out in the book of Leviticus. Says for this reason, when he came into the world, he said, "Sacrifice and offering um, you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me." In other words, the whole idea is sacrifices of animals are not going to do it. They're not going to really cut it any longer. What he wants is you. Not to sacrifice your body uh, in a bloody sense, but to give yourself in help in support of other people. In fact, there's a whole interesting point on this. But a body you have prepared for me. That's the title of this book here, which is a much deeper theological commentary on the book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful book. So if anyone of you want to get into a little deeper study of Hebrews, I would recommend this one here. But it is a little bit on the heavy side. But that's the name of it here. A body you have prepared for me. Comes right from this psalm right here. Okay. And that's Psalm 40. Okay. So um, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Holocausts and sin offerings 
you took no delight. Uh, took, took, okay? Uh, little, little typo there. You took no delight in. And then I said, as it is written in the scroll, Behold, I come to do your will, O Lord. So, fulfilling God's will for you is far more important than any animal sacrifice could ever be. And that is something that the Jewish people have never been able to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of good Jewish people and they've done a lot of good things. Unfortunately, it is not for the reason that Christians would uh, want to do the same thing. Uh, where this this is a psalm, Psalm 40, that is referring to Christ. Remember, there are a lot of prophecies in the Psalms. If you read the whole Psalm, you'll get a better, this is only a very small part of it. If you read the whole Psalm, you'll see where it really talks about the future. Yes. Psalm 40. Yeah, in this case it's Psalm 40 verse 7 and 8. Uh, now remember as I've said before the Jewish the educated Jewish people were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures the holy scriptures that they call it particularly at this time period and all you had to do was mention a small portion of a given scripture and they would immediately know where that came from and the whole uh, context around it so that it was far more meaningful to them than it is to us when we read just a small portion of it. Our library here, we had a library that was begun uh, several years ago and I was involved in the beginning of it uh, to help the ladies that were trying to categorize the, the books into uh, various subjects. Anyways, we got so many books that we had to start storing them elsewhere and off-site. Uh, people would just dump boxes of books on us and we didn't have the room to put them. Well, the new pastor came in and said, you know, he wanted us to get rid of all of that stuff um, and narrow the, the library down to just uh, certain categories of books. So we had a book sale here a year or so ago. And I asked the priest to mention it from the altar that we had a book sale. Well, that went over with, you know, deaf ears. And the first two masses, the Saturday night mass and the first two masses on Sunday morning, virtually nobody showed up. Well, but it was advertised in the bulletin for weeks. But, you know, half of the people don't read the bulletin anyways. So somebody went to the priest and told him that he had to announce it from the altar. Well, they almost shamed it into it. So in the last two Masses, um, the, 11, the 
in what 11:30 and the whatever it was the last two masses he did announce it and we had flocks of people come over but by that time it was too late to do anything um, so it shows in a way the power of the priest from the altar but unfortunately that falls on deaf ears excuse me father <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> well, yes, Joe. I think in times past, when people, a lot of people didn't read. There were a lot of people that were illiterate. And I think what the priest would say from the pulpit even had a greater thing, because my own grandfather did not read or write. And he knew all the stories. In the Bible and all of those things. And yeah. That was all just from listening. Sure. Yeah. Listening. And you ever wonder how stained glass windows got started with the pictures of various stories? Yeah. yeah. Same, reason. Same reason. People couldn't understand uh, or they couldn't read, so they made pictures in the stained glass windows to help them, you know, and when they heard the story and that they could identify, uh, that's the origin of the scenes in many stained glass windows. Yeah. So, the whole idea that I'm trying to get across is we as individuals have to get ourselves to heaven we, through the power and the connection that we have with Jesus Christ. We cannot depend on the parish priest. And it's important that you do not base your faith on who the priest is, good or bad, all right, or who, what the parish is like, or anything else. Your faith has got to depend on your personal relationship with Christ himself. It is so important, and unfortunately, you see more and more people drift away because they are so distracted by uh, other material things. And uh, when they reach the pearly gates at their end of, the end of life, they are going to be sadly disappointed. Okay. Let's go on here. Verse, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his ministry offering frequently those same sacrifices that can never take away sins. And this is, of course, talking about the priest of the Jewish uh, Old Testament time. But this one, Christ himself, offered one sacrifice for sins and took his seat forever at the right hand of God to intercede for us. I'm putting that in. And now he waits until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, that is his life, death, and resurrection, by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being consecrated. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us 
For after saying, This is the covenant I will establish with them after those days, says the Lord. He's repeating uh, something from the book of Jeremiah. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them upon their minds. He also says, this was repeated back in chapter 4. He also says, their sins and their evil doing I will remember no longer. In other words, the whole idea uh, of Christ's death on the cross was to erase the guilt of those good people who were who died before Christ and for the benefit of all mankind after his death and resurrection if we consciously partake of those benefits. But they're not going to just be there. They're like a gift. If somebody gives you a beautiful gift, all wrapped up in a nice box with ribbon and fancy paper and so forth, and you say, oh, well, thank you, thank you, thank you, and you put it down over here and don't do a thing about it, what good does it do? It's almost I slap at the person who gave it to you. Okay? And that is the way we should look at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A very, very special gift that mankind really needs to fulfill the things that God wants of us. And therefore, you have to use that gift. You have to make use of it. You can't wait for a priest or a parish or somebody else to do it for you. You are responsible for yourself in all things. Since, therefore, brothers and sisters, since through the blood of Jesus we have confidence of entrance into the sanctuary, that is, Christ and heaven, By the new and living way he opened for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a sincere heart and in absolute trust with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold unwaveringly in our confession that gives us hope. Remember we talked about this, I believe, last meeting or the meeting before. The experience of God leads to faith. And faith leads to hope. And hope leads to joy. And joy leads to love. And love leads then to holiness. Let us hold unwaveringly to our confession that gives us hope. For he who made the promise is trustworthy. And we must consider now how to rouse one another to love and to good works. Really a part of the most important part of uh, these two chapters. Should should we not stay away from 
our assembly, as is the custom of some, but encourage one another. And this all the more as you see the day drawing near. And it's the same thing today. People are not attending church to the same degree that they used to. And it's because, oh, they got too many other things to do. Uh, they got golf on Sunday, they got shopping, and, uh, oh, you know, you got to weed the yard, and so forth and so on. Those things are really not that important. If, if we sin deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains sacrifice for sins but a fearful prospect of judgment and a flaming fire that is coming to consume the adversaries. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses is put to death under the Jewish law without pity on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So do you think that a much worse punishment is due the one who has contempt for the Son of God and considers unclean the covenant blood by which he was consecrated, and insults the spirit of grace, we know that the one who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, comes from the book of Job. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God kind of uh, disturbing in a way. It is fearful, a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God because as I said before, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant or the First Covenant was bilateral. You Jewish people do this, and I will do that. You do this, and I will do that. But the covenant that we are now under is unilateral. In other words, one direction only. This is it, fellas and girls. This is the way I'm expecting you to live. And I'm giving you free will to do it, to choose as you wish. But remember, choices have a consequence. And if you choose to ignore God, he's going to say, you ignored me, why should I let you in? And to me, that is frightening. And that is why I do the best I can to help others see the way ahead. Any questions? Yes, Lisa. Yes. Uh, Jews for Jesus. Uh, uh, Jews for Jesus. Yeah. Um, 
it is uh, fading. Let's put it that way. It's fading. Yeah. Uh, and that's unfortunate for the same reason that Christianity is fading in, in many respects. Yeah. You go to Europe now and you go to a Catholic church, uh, there's very few people there. In fact, the high school that I went, no, the elementary school that I went to here in Michigan, seems like last century, last millennium, you know. <laughs> uh, it was in a very affluent uh, community. They didn't have a fancy church there. They had church in the gymnasium for a number of years. After I left, they built a magnificent church. High pillars, a lot of marble, etc., etc. I recently went back to a uh, wedding of a family member there. And there were very few people in the church. And the pastor, who we knew as a family, uh, were telling us later that the whole community has changed to a different ethnic group. And they don't go to church. Uh, and he said, the church will probably have to close because it cannot support itself. The school was no longer being used as a Catholic school. It was a community center. Uh, and the church itself would have to close because there was no, not enough people to support it. So, you see, it's, it's happening even in the best of circles. But it's up to us as individuals. Everyone seems to be kind of waiting for someone else to take them by the hand and lead them. And that's not what Christianity is all about. Uh, remember, God punished the Jewish people way back because they closed themselves and made themselves an exclusive, ex, pardon me, exclusive community. And that was not why they were the chosen people. They were chosen to be uh, a special loving community that radiated, radiated the love and the word of God out to other people, other nations. And instead, they didn't. They did just the opposite. And we are doing the same thing. We are making ourselves exclusive in a way because it's a very common thing that in mixed company you don't talk about death or taxes or religion. Well, that's not why we're we're here. Evangelization is extremely important. And you do it the best way you can, but ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Father, whatever, to give you some guidance as to how he wants you, as an individual, to share your faith with someone else. And believe me, he will use it. He will use, you know, your willingness to go out and spread the faith. Yeah, well, what Eleanor is saying here is that we cannot uh, make ourselves so exclusive that it doesn't, uh, that it cuts off other good people. Yeah, no. Uh, It tells us, in um, John's 
first letter, first letter of John, chapter 4, that if a person is not aware of who Christ is, or is aware only in a historical sense and not a spiritual sense, but the person lives in a spirit of true love of God and love of neighbor and expresses that love, then God lives in him or her. And God's not going to condemn somebody that he lives in. All right? So that gives us hope that there are good people out there who, for whatever reason, is not aware of or does not understand the position of Christianity that is centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And they're not going to be condemned because of that. But we have to leave it there. We can't go any further. All right. But that gives us hope that good people, many good people, outside of the Christian circles will be saved. Yes, ma'am. All right. Let's end with that prayer. Lord, we ask that you help each of us as individuals open our minds and our hearts to those people who are deemed to be good people but still have no relationship with you. Help us then in some way through our prayers, through our efforts, most of all through our speech and our actions, that we give them encouragement to open their minds and their hearts to you. Strengthen us in our efforts to evangelize. Strengthen us in our efforts to spread the good news and be your instruments of love to those people. So we thank you this, for this time and we ask that you bless each of us so that we in our own ways come closer to you through prayer. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.